You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Welcome to Done By Law on 3CR Radio, 8.55am and online via 3cr.org.au. Your hosts tonight are three of us. My name's Sue Robertson and I'm joined by Daniel Babchevich and Gemma Lee Dodds for the show. We're proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're broadcasting on, which is in the case of our remote recording in this world of COVID-19, the lands of the Wurundjeri. Tonight's program comes with a content warning as we are discussing sensitive topics surrounding sexual abuse. If you or a friend find this show raises any concerns for you, you may contact Lifeline on 131114 or 1800 RESPECT or get in touch with the many other services available in the community for support. The topic tonight is the High Court's judgment that was handed down today in the appeal by Cardinal George Pell against his conviction for child sex offences. Yes, yeah, Sue, that's that's right. And just a note to our listeners that we are recording this show tonight. The introduction we are doing with the benefit of having just heard the breaking news about George Pell's conviction being overturned unanimously by the full seven-judge court of the High Court today. We haven't had the opportunity to go through the judgment in full will no doubt have the benefit of doing that in the coming days and reading through it, analysing it. But as it stands, Cardinal George Pell has had his convictions quashed and will be released from prison. The courts found that there wasn't evidence beyond reasonable doubt to support a finding of guilt. It will be a very difficult decision, I think, in for the community to come to terms with, um, especially at a time where a lot of vulnerable people in the community are isolated from support services. The rest of the, the, rest of the program we recorded last night uh, with each other after having read through the court summary of the submissions. And that will be a discussion without the benefit of knowing what the outcome was. And it was our analysis of the legal principles and the submissions by each of the legal teams on their substance alone. Yeah. And yeah, us just chewing the fat about what we thought about those submissions. And so those comments were made before this decision was handed down this morning. Yeah. We have not come to a determination in any of our discussions. We, we didn't really act as judges. We sort of just fleshed out and expanded on some of the tricky 
convoluted legal principles that might be hard to understand when they're put to a court. Well, they, they can be, it seems that, you know, they're in language that's really inaccessible and and um, to everyday people, even to us, Daniel. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. And, um, and ideas that sometimes don't make a lot of sense to the community at large. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, that'll be, that'll be all for now. Let's um, get into the rest of our discussion with Sue Robertson, Gemma Lee Dodds, and myself, Daniel Batchevich. Three lawyers uh, on a Zoom call talking about a case. It's going to be great. Literally has been the only thing I've done all week. <laughs> it's like having multiple lawyers on Zoom calls. <laughs> it's a joy to be spending this evening with you. So, I mean, yeah, I guess to like get things kicked off, obviously, um, we've known that this High Court application has been kind of in the works for a number of months, but you know, taking yourself to the High Court website and working back through the documents from when it first happened, when the, the application for special leave to appeal was made, was made way back in September 2019, which was not only last year, was not in COVID lockdown, it was an entirely different world at that point. Feels like um, forever ago now, doesn't it? Forever ago, it was brilliant. Um, <laughs> Uh, and through spring through to now, there's been uh, a series of documents that have been filed by both parties, by you know the representatives of the applicant, who are of course the defence solicitors for Pell, and then the solicitors in this case for the respondent, who are of course the the DPP, who have who are appealing, uh, sorry, opposing the application for leave to appeal. But you'll have to forgive us listeners for making sure we get our non-climature right the way we're referring to what which party is who. <laughs> um, yes. It does require somewhat of a like, you've always thought of Pell as a defendant and now he's the applicant. It's one of those sort of necessary um, shifts of thinking. But what really struck me just from a really practical point of view just to start things off is how crisp and clear the, the documents are. They're, they're so brief. Um, I think we were talking just before about how the nature of an application for special leave to appeal is kind of you've got five minutes to really impress the High Court judges uh, with your application. You have to put your crispest, cleanest, best best foot forward when there'll be swathes and swathes of, uh, of judgments that have that have gone before you that you know consider a really dense, complex question of criminal law, which is then boiled down in these submissions to you know we're talking about documents for one of the most important criminal cases that's got five bullet points. It's pretty interesting to think uh, that that's how, how crisp and clear you have to be in your legal argument. Yeah, that's, uh, I find that interesting that the documents by be crisp and clear, but um, for those of you that um, had the time to watch <laughs> the oral submissions that were presented to the High Court, um, you and you can do this, you go on the High Court website, you can watch the video, it's, uh, it's, uh, about nine hours of riveting oral submissions, just <laughs> and the the tone I, I have to have to admit isn't isn't as riveting as it as it, I expected it would be. It's definitely um, very very slow discussion it doesn't have to in like a somber. <laughs> oh, it's 
Yeah, it is tough to get through. Uh, and it's not about the, the trial evidence as such. That's the difficult thing too. It's uh, about oh. these legal principles, a lot of difficult legal jargon that even I must say as a lawyer, I've had to pause at times to look up the definition of a word or a phrase and just go, what, what on earth? Um, mm. But that's the, that's what goes on in the high court. So it's, fascinating to see inside that and we were talking um just before about you know it is an important case because it's a case about whether the the court has the right to turn overturn or or knock out a decision by a jury which is so central to our our system of justice here that it's a big thing to say well the, we think the jury couldn't reasonably have gotten to that decision based oh. on what we see and then you pretty much just one case sort of is the central legal authority yeah m's case yeah which is all about when when what the court has to do when it undergoes when it decides it's going to go through that process so mm. Mm, it's quite what is um, the, the legal standard i mean i, I think when um, you know, having chats with friends about the case, people obviously, as you were saying before, really, really taken with the, the the really emotive facts that are obviously present in this case and are present in every historical abuse or sexual assault case. Um, but when you look at the legal documents, um, brief they are, obviously, the the facts are uh, are merely kind of uh, background. Uh, noise to the legal principles that are being, you know, contested. So I guess from your point of view, I'd be interested in in, in hearing where you think the real, um, the the real uh, sort of edge of what the case uh, before the, the the judges focuses on. If, you know, obviously there's there's a few different legal arguments, but I mean, to my mind, certainly the the central issue is whether or not the Court of Appeal in, in Victoria, which was the, the, the court below the High Court, um, made an error in insinuating basically that the standard of whether the jury reached an unreasonable decision was because the defence did not prove that it was impossible. That's that's effectively it, isn't it, Gemma? The the argument really is, or the the ground of appeal was effective is effectively the prosecution did not prove beyond reasonable doubt that the offences occurred, and that a jury should not have been able to find Pell guilty because they must have had a reasonable doubt given the evidence in the trial, and that's that's re that's really what it is it's a uh, effectively pell is arguing um and has argued that the jury made their own mind up uh on evidence that they shouldn't have made their mind up on that's that is effectively what the you, you can spin it how you want with all the legal jargon that you want but effectively pell's argument is these 12 jurors decided my fate and decided that I was guilty on evidence that wasn't um, strong enough to prove my guilt. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that's, that's the argument. 
Yeah, it's all focused on that concept of beyond reasonable doubt and, and, um, and how, you know, when a jury um, has enough evidence to come to the conclusion that someone is guilty beyond reasonable doubt, it can be found guilty. And it, you know, relies on that M's case that we were talking about before. I think the, the difficulty is, is a bit with that is that um, in some ways it seems a bit like this case demonstrates where the age-old criminal principles of law, the beyond reasonable doubt standard, buffers up against the shifting social mores where people have now become much more comfortable um, and understand the nature of systemic abuse and accept the truth um, of a victim's testimony with much uh, more informed um, understanding of the likelihood that abuse occurs, that the fact that so few um, victims ever come forward, let alone their matters be prosecuted you know, successfully as the court of tr to trial. Um, and so I wonder whether the jury in, in this case um, heard obviously extremely compelling um, testimony from, from the victim, uh, which was, as I understand, the only piece of evidence um, that was really relied on by, not like really relied on by the prosecution, but certainly um, Pellet himself wasn't called, but there were a litany of witnesses called by the defence. And so when doing that synthesis, um, when the jury was weighing up um, the, the litany of, of of evidence that Pell's team put forward of very, um, you know, well-to-do um, people in very high positions of power who gave um, witness testimony willingly in support of Pell's version. Whether what we've seen is in fact now a shift in belief um, about saying, I understand and I believe in victim, and how that mm -hmm. measures up when compared to beyond reasonable doubt. Is it okay to have one person's a victim's testimony, which we understand now, and, and, and juries are increasingly be able to understand and, and believe. And does that stack up against what the, the normative, I guess, standard of the beyond reasonable doubt has been? Hmm. Well, it was a really interesting discussion in the in the um, submissions about the idea that you know should um, cases like this be treated slightly differently. And I think that's a really interesting question because. You know, this is a really old school system that we're, we're working with. Like when I say old school, I mean like hundreds of years old. And in those days, you know, when it originated, the adversarial system, it was about things that just happened, not stuff that happened 22 years ago. And, and um, as those kinds of cases have come into the system, that system's having trouble dealing with that lag in time, you know. And people can't remember stuff like I can't remember what I did last week you know <laughs> like yeah. you know to ask me what happened 22 years ago if there wasn't something outstanding on a particular day I'm not going to remember it you know um I think the point there as well Suba is that you may not remember the mundane uh yeah. facts and trivial uh pursuits as such, of your week last week, but of serious traumatic uh, abuse um, is something mm. that will 
forever mm. permeate your memory. Yeah. And that's that's an understanding, a psychological understanding that the law mm. has now I think started to grapple with, but it's been a sl- a slow move towards understanding that. And I think one of the things that's important to understand is that the criminal trial for for Pell that this appeal was based on, the victim didn't actually give evidence in this trial. They gave evidence in a trial prior to this and mm. that was recorded and that trial was uh, vacated because the jury couldn't get to a verdict that they all agreed upon. So they had to have a retrial. But there's rules in place to protect uh, victims of sexual abuse that uh, allow them to be uh, giving evidence, examined and cross-examined, and have that examination recorded so that they don't have to go through that process again, experience the serious trauma of going through the adversarial criminal process um, again and again, if required. So there's, there's some identification i think from the law that at least it's moving towards a greater understanding and acceptance of how we need to deal with serious criminal abuse in the past but i wonder if i guess one of the i'm not sure if it's pressed in the high court document i can't think about about where it was i've seen it but um i recall reading somewhere that one of the defence team's arguments, at least at one point, I'm not sure it was in this application, was that it was the very nature of that, that, that nature of the evidence that was given by the victim, which wasn't, uh, which because it was pre-recorded, there wasn't the same ability to cross-examine the victim in that moment in time, in person, before the jury. And so again, coming back to that beyond reasonable doubt standard, um, or... The, the, the reason why the Criminal Procedure Act is the way that it is or the way the Jury Direction Act is the way that it is is so that you can have that human um, immediacy of being able to see a victim um, or to see the accused. The accused has to come to court so that people can look at them. Um, mm-hmm. There is this very visceral sensory um, aspect to how evidence is tested and one of the, the, the issues that I've seen raised by defendant, and um, I feel like it was in this case, but now I'm feeling less sure about that, is mm-hmm. whether or not that prevents the proper airing of the evidence from there, from the defence perspective as well. Yeah, it's really tricky because, I mean, we're all learning about this in, in COVID-19 world when we're forced now to use Zoom instead of face-to-face meetings and so on. And, you know, all of us will be realising, or you know, it becomes very apparent that there's so much communication that happens in very minute gestures and and um, movements and expressions that don't get picked up in how doesn't matter how wonderful the recording is um, yeah and yeah so um, but on the other hand there's the what what Dan was talking about before where the law is recognizing that um, there's you know if someone's made this kind of accusation, then they're talking about something that's traumatic and um, to make them go through it again and again and again and again and again is just reimposing the trauma. So there's a really interesting um, balance happening there about how, you know, how, how do we use this system that we've got that, in, you know, started so long ago 
to get really just outcomes. That point you, you raised earlier, Gemma, about the, the evidence um, being recorded once and so can't be tested yeah. in, in a real life setting where you can see into the eyes of the, of the person live um, yeah. as they're giving evidence was a point that immediately, if you watch the online oral submissions in the High Court, immediately is, is what the High Court judges press the prosecution barrister on. So as soon as they get up to speak, they're, they're more hoping they get an opportunity to make their formal appearance and say their opening line. And then it's about a minute in, they start getting bombarded with questions about the nature of the victim's evidence and what is the nature of this recording and, and the exhibit then, and how is that impacting the, the outcome of a jury? And they are pressed yeah. on it straight away from a number of judges who ask a lot of questions of them. And immediately this barrister is feeling a bit under pressure because Pell's barrister actually got quite a bit of time really before they even got one question, which was mm. interesting. Yeah, is that was that was it Brett Walker on his beat for Pell? Yeah, that's right. Brett Walker yeah. was representing Pell. In my view, the most hypocritical statement in Pell's defence. It's it strikes me the irony of it is that the argument from Pell's barrister was, and I quote: "Belief does not drive from the field the possibility of reasonable doubt," and that was in a context of um, Brett Walker speaking about that it doesn't mean just because we believe something we are therefore saying or making true the fact that we cannot be wrong about which our belief leads us um, oh. and i just think for someone like cardinal pell who is a superior religious elder um, mm. who has made a life of maintaining that their belief must be true and that they are not wrong about their belief is then in a court of law when it's suitable for them raising the argument that, oh yes, just because we believe something doesn't mean we're right. <laughs> I just, just find, I don't know true. if you see the hypocrisy there in that. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. They're different. Like the, that belief and reasonable doubt thing was being raised in the context of the, the, um, legal principle from M's case that that both both sides were being asked to extrapolate on by the High Court that you know to put their position about and you know um, because in the they're talking about you know if an appellate court is going to really seriously overturn a jury decision or not you know say that you know oh, this they really couldn't possibly have gotten to that decision then the court itself has to look at all of the evidence and then decide whether um, they're convinced by it and then say and the jury got to see it you know in much more fresh um, a much more fresh structure so do they have a more of an advantage that kind of might way against that it, you know and belief and reasonable doubt um were part of really woven through that it's very very interesting um is that do you think where where do you think the court of appeal did get that perspective 
wrong? Did that seem to be borne out in the way? How, how strong were the submissions in that way, I guess, Daniel? From having watched the hours of the, of the oral submissions, which I'll confess now I didn't do, um, oh please! You don't have to. You don't have to. And I, if you are seriously interested while you are in isolation and you have nine spare hours, by all means, go ahead and do it. Um, but you also don't have to, but, because Daniel has. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's something. What was else. what was your your take from it? I get having I guess having had the benefit of 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 getting a sense at least of what the bench's interests were. Did you get a sense that they were? taken with any particular argument um, where do you have a thing that where do you think they might go yeah well there were a lot of a lot of arguments had but it appeared to me that the central the central focus was as sue has mentioned a lot is the m case and the m case oh. was um uh the case of a man m who was charged in the 90s with indecently and sexually assaulting their their 13 year old daughter and this was a case that um had, had a similar i i guess um type of evidence and nature of evidence yeah um uh, being submitted where they were convicted and in the appeal to the high court m was uh, eventually successful with overturning the conviction uh and the key result there and outcome was that their precedent there existed where the high court has said that there's this test that if a jury must have entertained a reasonable doubt then they had to have found someone not guilty of an offense and the question is then is there a reasonable doubt and has a jury effectively made an error or acted inappropriately in in ignoring that doubt and that's and that's effectively what's being questioned is okay, what was there um, any way that it could be possible to show that the jury must have had a reasonable doubt? And that's what kept being okay. focused on. And the Pell barristers would argue certain questions should have been asked that weren't. And so because those questions weren't asked and those answers weren't provided, there's doubt. It was effectively a lot about that, about why, why wasn't this asked? Why wasn't this person giving evidence about something to allay any doubt? And that's... So they're that's just trying to poke holes, basically, in, in you may well believe the victim's testimony, but you can't account for the, the, the fact that there's only four and a half minutes to have gotten from place A to place B, and that wasn't accounted for. You can't account for the fact that there were 10 people that saw him and, you know, 30 seconds before over this side. You can't account for... So that's, I think, obviously where where the rubber hits the road a little bit, irrespective of whatever the, the outcome is tomorrow. It's certainly not going to be over for Pell. I think that's clear from from oh. the media that we've seen in the last couple of days that uh, a, a huge number of civil claims waiting in the wings, it would appear. And, and, and with that, a different evidentiary burden I think it's important to know so then we you'd revert to a a standard which is not as forensically fastidious mm -hmm. so to be interesting that's unfortunately all we have time for this evening on done by law on 3cr 8.55am and 3cr.org.au online that was our discussion that we had last night as a team about the 
Cardinal Pell criminal appeal submissions, you will now know the outcome has been that Cardinal Pell was released and the convictions were quashed as of this morning. If this uh, conversation has been difficult or raised any concern for you, a reminder that you should contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 Respect or any other service that you might have a relationship with out in the community. And a reminder that Done By Law will be back next Tuesday night, 6pm on 3CR on 8.55am. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.